0: Our text today is in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, if you look that up, I want to read from Genesis chapter 5 to give us some background to the verse in chapter 11 of Hebrews that we'll be looking at shortly. So from Genesis 5, first when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared's life were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Then in Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it's impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. In February of this year, 2018, a public figure died and lay in state in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol building. And as other public figures spoke of him, they noticeably departed from what has become the norm on such occasions. They made a passing reference to his achievements, but they focused their remarks on his character, his humility, his integrity, and even his faith. Those, some of whom did not share his faith, were able to express in their own words exactly what he believed. The public figure, of course, was Dr. Billy Graham. Many years ago, theologian David Wells observed that at the beginning of the 19th century, most obituaries made some mention of the character of the deceased. By the end of that century, in the beginning of the 20th century, that was rarely the case. Up until today, a person's occupation, what they did with their life, their achievements, is seen as the main part of who they are. As Wells puts it, there has been a substitution of function for character, largely, he thinks, because Quote, there is no consensus concerning what constitutes good character today. When you read Genesis 4 and 5, you'll find a list of names. Some of them are big names. People who built cities, led armies, forged tools, established dynasties, in English dynasties, in Americanese, grew businesses, composed music, championed the arts. These were all very great, very influential figures. And it is their achievements that are mentioned. As you read the story, you will also notice that in this record of human life and achievement, post the fall of Adam... Each of their stories ends with the same tolling of the bell, and he died, and he died, and he died. In each and every case, the lie of hell whispered into Eve's ear, you shall not surely die, was contradicted by the tolling of that bell. The statistics In the early chapters of Genesis are remarkably unified and impressive. One out of one people died. With one exception. And it's the exception that I want to look at this morning. And here's the story of the exception. This is how Moses puts it. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Here's how the writer to the Hebrews puts it, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and he was not found because God translated him. So in this record of names that we have here in Hebrews chapter 11, we started with Abel, and now we have Enoch. And there's a relationship between these two men right at the very beginning of the human story. Both of them are types of Christ. They both point to something about Jesus. Abel was a type of Christ, of course, in his death. He was a righteous man who was put to death. Jesus was the righteous one who was put to death for us. Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice to God, and God was pleased with him. Jesus offered Himself as the final sacrifice. And God received it on our behalf for our salvation. Enoch, on the other hand, is a type of Christ in his ascension into glory. We think of Jesus after the resurrection. Remember, departing from his disciples, ascending into glory in our resurrection body. Enoch represents that moment of ascension into glory. When Jesus ascended, he went into heaven itself, He went as the pioneer of our salvation, creating a new and living way into the presence of God. Enoch, in his life, served as a pledge and witness of eternal life to those who were living at that period in history. Just as the Lord Jesus, who is the captain of our salvation, has gone into heaven in His resurrection body as a pledge of our eternal glory. So, both are examples of Christ, or types of Christ, and both are examples of faith. Abel is an illustration of where faith might get you. Abel is killed because of his faith. So, Abel is a warning that if you believe in God, it will not necessarily be an easy ride to the end. Enoch, on the other hand, shows us what's involved in believing God, what the reward of believing God is, what lies ahead of those who believe God, whether they're killed or not. Glory lies ahead of the people of God. So, I want to look at the story of Enoch this morning. And he's a remarkable man, and there are three remarkable things that I want to say about Enoch today. First of all, I want you to point you to Enoch's remarkable message to the world of his day. His remarkable message to the world. The history of Enoch is rather brief but compelling. We read that there was a change in his life round about the age of 65. So just about the time when some of you are thinking of retiring, there was a remarkable change in his life, and as a result, he lived another 300 years. I'm not going to promise that to any of you, today. But nonetheless, I want to reassure you that whatever age you are, there could be a change occur in your life. At any point, you can change in terms of your relationship to God. You may be older, getting long in the tooth, gray around the ears, and uh, fuzzy in the head. But today, you can come into a right relationship with God, because that happened to Enoch. This is what it says, that… When he had fathered Methuselah, around the time he fathered Methuselah, we're told that Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. It seems that this change that occurred in Enoch came from some revelation that he had been given by God. A revelation that's summed up in the name that He gave to His Son. Because He gave him this name in a spirit of prophecy. You see, the name Methuselah means when He dies, it will happen. Or when He dies, there will be a, dismissing, a dismissal. Or when He dies, it will, it will be sent. But the whole point in the story of Genesis is that the name of Methuselah had contained in it God's warning concerning the great flood. In other words, the naming of Methuselah was a warning to humanity that God was going to send judgment. It is appointed to men once to die, and after death, judgment. Judgment. But the naming of Methuselah was also a a proclamation of the gospel. God is giving you this man as a token, a sign, and a signal to everybody that God is going to send judgment, but he's telling you before it happens. Why? So that you might repent. So that you might turn to God. In other words, the naming of Methuselah was a proclamation of the gospel to the people of his day. His name was a lesson for Methuselah, that however long you live, you're going to die. And he lived a long time, 969 years, but he knew throughout all of those centuries that he lived that he was going to die. And it was a message to the world around him. You don't want Methuselah to die, because after he dies it will come. The Jewish rabbis believed that Methuselah died seven days before the flood came. In the scriptural record, he certainly died in the year that the flood came. His death prompted the Word of God to be fulfilled in terms of the judgment. His name was a prophecy. And that name being a prophecy is interesting because it seemed to launch not only did it it Uh, provoked the faith of Enoch, but it launched Enoch into a whole new uh, life passion from that moment onwards. Uh, Jude, in the New Testament, is uh, one of the natural brothers of our Lord Jesus, though he doesn't uh, introduce himself that way. He kind of plays that bit down. But Jude tells us this about Enoch. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying… Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In other words, it was the ministry of Enoch's life from the birth of Methuselah to the end of his life to preach. The gospel, and to proclaim the gospel to the people of his day, and to demonstrate to the people of his day why it was that the judgment of the flood was going to fall upon the earth. And I want you to notice what what it is he challenges in his day. He doesn't simply parade before the eyes of everybody the moral infidelities and the moral failures of everybody around him in the society. He goes to the very heart and origin of all the unrighteousness and immorality that we find in, in society today. He goes to the, re, the relationship with God that these people had. For it is always godlessness that leads to unrighteousness, ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. And Enoch confronted the ungodliness that was in the hearts of men and women. It was God they were rejecting, ultimately. And he challenged this. And the life of Enoch is very similar to the life of Elijah. Both of them had a great contest, if you will, with the world by faith. Both of them engaged full on the ungodliness of their age. They did not hesitate to confront sin. They did not hesitate to hold sin up before men's eyes and to say to men and women, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The judgment of God is going to fall on this society because of its departure from God. They did not hold back. There was this great contest between God and The people and the vehicles, Enoch and Elijah, both spoke boldly to their people of their day. And as we shall see in both of their cases, there was an intervention of God to demonstrate that God was on their side, Enoch, Elijah, that God was behind them, with them, supporting them, encouraging them, owning them as His servant— in that context in which they live. That was Enoch's remarkable message to the world of his day, a message about the second coming of the Messiah in power and glory and that was going to be demonstrated or at least foreshadowed by the great flood that would come upon the earth. Then the second thing about Enoch that we learn from this story is Enoch's remarkable Testimony in the world. Enoch's remarkable testimony in the world. Here it is Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. You see, there this remarkable thing that happened right about the age of 65 in this man's life changed the course of his life. It says in Hebrews, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, what was it that began then at that age? Well, the text suggests two things. One, he believed God. He believed God. There was a revelation, perhaps it was the revelation that God was going to send the flood of judgment on the earth. And perhaps people had talked about it before. Perhaps people had murmured that God would act or do something in the past, and he hadn't listened But somehow at that age, there was something happened in his heart. God the Holy Spirit prepared him to hear this word of revelation, and he heard it, and he believed it. He believed it. He believed God when it came to this word of God. How do I know that? Because it says in Hebrews 5 that he pleased God. And it says in Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. So what was it that made the difference? This man heard the Word of God and believed the Word of God. That's where it began with Enoch. That's where it has to begin with you and me. And faith is not something you have latent within you, and what you have to do is you have to get it out and then kind of screw it around and, 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 make, it, and make it happen and make it work. Faith is not natural to us. Faith is the gift of God, the Bible says. It's a gift from God. And you and I have a revelation from God. That revelation is in the Bible. These are the words of God. God speaks to us. This is God's Word. And what we have to do is we have to believe what God has said. That's where it begins, believing God. Here's how it's put in the New Testament in John chapter 20 when Uh, John the Apostle is, is summarizing the life of Christ, he says this, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through Him. Enoch demonstrates by his career that he believed God and had life through Him. If you believe God, what God has witnessed to concerning Jesus, you will have life through Him today. So Enoch believed God. Secondly, Enoch accompanied God. Look at the the way it's put. He walked with God. He walked with God. He continued, he began and he continued with God throughout the rest of his life. He moved in God's direction. Walking with someone implies that, doesn't it? You don't arrange to meet somebody somewhere the next morning and go for a walk with them and then meet them the next morning and say, Well, it's good that you could come to walk with me today. I'm going to walk this way. You could go that way. That doesn't work. I mean, if you're going to go for a walk with someone, you've got to walk in the same direction. Enoch walked in the same direction as God, he walked beside God, he walked with God. And the longer he walked with God, as we see from that passage I just quoted from, from Jude and his preaching, the longer you are with God, the more you begin to share something of God's unswerving hostility to evil in all its forms. Why does God hate evil? Because evil ruins lives, it spoils lives, it blasts humanity. Evil destroys reputations. Evil vitiates a whole lifetime of work. Evil destroys families and civilizations and cultures and nations. Evil deconstructs humanity until we're more like beasts than like those who are made in the image of God. And the closer you get to God, the more you begin to reflect God's values and God's assessment of sin. Here's how the prophet Isaiah puts it in Isaiah chapter 53. He says this, who among us can dwell with the the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? What's he talking about, fire and burnings? He's talking about God, God's holiness. The writer to the Hebrews tells us our God is a consuming fire. The fire of God's holiness burns constantly. does not need to be fed by anything. It is a self-burning fire. It is His nature, and it burns against all that is evil, all that is sinful, all that hurts and destroys on all His holy mountain. Who can dwell in the presence of a holy God? Who is not going to be consumed? by a holy God. Isaiah's cry when he sees the holiness of God, woe is me. I am consumed. I'm undone. I'm falling apart. I'm disintegrating. I cannot exist in the presence of the holiness of God. Who can dwell there? Isaiah answers, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ear from hearing a bloodshed, who shuts his eyes from looking on evil. Those are the people who take God seriously, who walk through life, who have their daily walk with God, who have their eyes open, and before their eyes they see in all circumstances the reality of God present, whether in private or in public whether doing religious duties or the ordinary affairs of everyday life god is before their eyes they see him before they see anything else and that that affects everything they do the reality of god the fear of god is before their eyes and it's a transforming fear this is enoch's remarkable remarkable testimony that throughout his life he kept close To God. He had the inner witness and others looking on. He had the esteem of outsiders who looked on and saw the evidences of grace in this man's life. That was what was so remarkable about those statements in memorial for Billy Graham from the great and the good. That's all they could say about him, you see. Because they saw those things. But then the third thing. Is Enoch's remarkable exit from the world. His remarkable exit from the world. Moses said. Enoch walked with God. And he was not. For God took him. They searched and searched for him. But he was not found. There was. Likely some public indication of his departure, as we'll see in a moment. Here's how Hebrews puts it. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and he was not found because God translated him or transported him. The word means to be moved from one place to another place, one condition to another condition. We're being told about this one man that his whole person, That is, his soul and his body, as John Owen puts it, was taken out of one place to another place, out of one condition to another condition. This is the remarkable exit that's recorded in Scripture. There was nothing ordinary about this man's leaving the world, nothing normal, nothing for which ordinary language could be used. He was not, for God took him. And the Hebrews underlines this, he was taken so that he should not taste death. God gathered Enoch to Himself, soul and body in an instant, to enjoy everlasting glory. Now, let me just pause for a second here. There's a sense in which that happens to every believer at death, at the point of death, they are transitioned, they are transported, they are transferred, they are translated to a better place. When you die, you will be translated in this way. If you walk with God here, then when you die, you will go as Enoch did to live with God in uninterrupted glory. Uh, Thomas Manton puts it like this, many times Christ comes into His garden and crops the lilies that he may transplant them from the winter gardens to the summer gardens, from the church below to paradise above, that we might read divinity, not from a textbook, but in the face of the Lamb forevermore, just as scholars go from grammar school to university. We grow from here to the ivory palaces. That's true of every believer when they died, They leave their body, however, and they go in their spirit to those ivory palaces to read divinity in the face of Jesus. But this story tells us that Enoch made the same transition, body and soul. That was what was unique and different. And in this respect, he is one of a pair in all Scripture, the other being Elijah you know the story of Elijah. Elijah and his sidekick, Elisha, are out walking, and they're being followed by the, the other would-be prophets who are in prophet seminary. And uh, they're observing the two great men ahead of them, Elijah and Elisha, talking together. And here's, what, here's what's recorded by eyewitnesses. And so they still went on and talked and talked, And behold, the chariots of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. They saw him no more. There was this public demonstration of the removal of Elijah from the world on chariots, and the prophets in seminary, watching, thought to themselves, what's God done with them? Maybe He's just taken them to the next valley over. We'll go and look there. It wasn't there. Maybe they've taken them to the mountaintop. They looked there. But God had taken him into glory. It's very likely that Enoch left in similar circumstances with some kind of visible display of the power of God that convinced the people of his day that, in fact, he was not dead, although they searched just to check it out. They searched for his body and did not find it. But that he had immediately gone into the presence of God. Now, how is this story of any help to you and me? The story of Elijah and Enoch is rare in the Bible. I've told you there's only two of them. Even our Lord Jesus had to die, be buried, and then raised from death. The story of the Lord Jesus will be replicated in all of his people. We will die. We will be buried. And on the resurrection day, we will be raised. That's one of the great things we look forward to every Easter, but we should think about it every Sunday because this Sunday is the day of resurrection. And when Jesus comes back again, that is going to happen to all Jesus' people. They will be raised. Think about Enoch for a moment. He did not see death, it says. God took him. But He didn't take him through death as He likely will for us. His exit is exceptional. He was spared, exempted from the sanction of the law, the wages of sin is death, by the sheer grace of God alone. He was taken without dying. Now remember when this happens. This happens right at the very beginning of the human story. This is before there are races and nations. There are just people. And so, to people generally, the world over, the only world there was, the only people there were, had a testimony in their day that it was possible physically in the body to live an eternal life. It was only an inkling, but it was an inkling. It was a clue, but it was was only a clue, but it was a clue. It was a sign. It may only have been a sign, but the reality of Enoch's story is the genesis of any hope there is in the human mind, that there is life beyond death. That's very important. And then later on, Elijah, same thing happens to him. as a a message and a a sign to the elect, to God's people. Now, why is this important to us? You take Enoch for a moment. He was taken. He is the principal prophet and preacher of the ancient world. He's gotten a hearing. He's well known. Everybody knows him. For 300 years he's been going around doing the preaching about all the ungodly and all the ungodly things the ungodly have been doing in their ungodly way and so on. Then suddenly reports are that he's been carried off. they've checked it out. No body. No trace. Gone. Because God had translated him. Had transferred him had moved him, shifted him, taken him from here to there, from earth to glory. It was an act of God's sheer grace. Enoch's story and Elijah's story will bring some comfort, perhaps, to some of you one day. Some of you might be alive when Jesus returns. When Paul's talking about the second coming of Jesus, he talks about about the dead in Christ, all the Christian dead up until that moment. You know what he says about them? We read it at funerals all the time. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and they will be made like Christ in His glorified body. But that's not all that's going to be there. There are going to be people when Jesus returns who are, in Paul's words, alive and left. Although he tells us they won't be left for very long. Here's how how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, we shall not all sleep. But we shall all Be changed. Elijah didn't die. What happened to him? He was changed. Enoch didn't die. What happened to him? He was changed. Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, what happened to Enoch and Elijah will happen to those who are alive and left at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And what happened at that moment? Mortality put on immortality. The perishable put on the imperishable. The corruptible put on incorruption. It was a transformation in which at that moment when God took him, God changed his physical body so that it was fit to live for billions and billions and billions and trillions of years, forever. And what happened to Enoch and Elijah will happen to those who are alive and left when the Lord Jesus comes again. Can you imagine that? We pray for the Lord Jesus to come back again. I don't know if you do, but we should do. We're a bit coy about talking about it because we remember the dispensationalists and we've all been delivered from dispensationalism one way or another. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about the second coming because it's the next item on God's agenda for our world. It's the next thing that's going to happen in the great program of salvation. That Christ will return personally, visibly, publicly. Every eye shall see Him. And what it will be to be alive on that day, to be still alive in the body on that day. The dead in Christ shall rise first. and They will be changed. And those who are alive and well will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so they shall be forever with the Lord. That's what's going to happen on that day. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, all together, at one time, the dead and the living, caught up together, all transferred, all changed, transported from this life into glory. That's the prospect that lies before the child of God. The old gospel writer tried to capture it in his words, Oh joy, o oh delight, should we go without dying? No sickness, no sadness, no dread, and no crying. Caught up through the clouds with our Lord into glory when Jesus receives his own. Oh Lord Jesus, how long? How long till we shout that glad song, Christ returneth? Hallelujah. That is our prospect, that is our future. That's what the Bible says. And it's the promise made to every believer in all places at all time, and it it has been held out to God's people from the very beginning, as Enoch testifies, by his experience. This is where it is going, ultimately, to this great get-together day when the Lord calls His children home. This story has been quoted by just about everybody I know. And I don't know where it originates. The first time I read it was D.L. Moody, so I'll attribute it to D.L. Moody. Although Camel Morgan quotes it, I meant to check to see whether Dr. Boyce had quoted it, but I forgot to do that. So I'm just going to trace it back. The first time I read this story, D.L. Moody told it. He was a great American evangelist. About a little girl who came home from Sunday school eager to tell her mother about a wonderful man they'd heard about in the story that day. His name was Enoch, she said. And you know, Mom, he used to go for walks with God. Her mother was suitably impressed and said, that's a wonderful thing, dear. How did the story end? The girl replied, well, Mom, one day they just walked and walked and talked and talked. And got so far, God said to Enoch, you know, we've gone a long way today, Enoch. You're a long way from home. I think you should just come and stay with me. Now, there's a sense of which God says that to all His children. The point of death, the angels come to take us into His immediate presence, comes to take us home with Him, to stay. But there will be a generation on earth that will not see death. And the Lord Jesus will return. And like the story of Enoch and Elijah, they will be caught up to come and stay forever with the Lord. Will you be one of them? Will you be one of those who stay with the Lord forever? Who go home with Him? Who are part of His family for all eternity? Are you sure of that? And if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? That you went to church? That you did good works? That you gave to charity? None of those answers will get you in. There's only one answer. Jesus died for me. Jesus lived for me. Jesus is my only hope then come and stay with me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please write your word on our hearts today. For those who don't know you, that you would draw them after the Lord Jesus. Give them the faith to trust in him, the faith to believe you and your word of promise, and the joy of leaving here with a glorious hope that we together When that great day comes, we'll enter into the joy of our Lord. We pray in His strong name. Amen.